If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello. Okay, we're, uh, we're good to go. We're live. Good evening or good afternoon. Joining us from a different time zone. Hi, Mary. Hi. Um, I'm Octavia Bright and I'm very happy to be here at the virtual LRB bookshop to talk to Mary Gateskill about her latest book of essays, Oppositions, which is a collection of her work from over the last 30 years. Before we get started, a tiny bit of housekeeping. Um, links to books mentioned during our conversation will be dropped into the chat by Claire, where you can also type any questions that you'd like me to ask Mary, because we'll have some time at the end. Um, so please, just anything that comes up, put it in there and, and we'll get to it. Um, so Mary, we've asked you to start with a reading. Would you mind setting that up for us, please? Absolutely not. Um, this is uh, an essay that I wrote in 2013 um, on Linda Lovelace, who, in case some younger people in the audience don't know who she is, she was um, a kind of strange um, celebrity in the 70s because she did a, a porn movie called Deep Throat that was made on an incredibly small budget by half mafia involved people and um, somehow became like a cultural um, bonanza. It was just everybody, Jackie Kennedy went to see Deep Throat or Jackie Onassis went to see Deep Throat. It was like the thing to do in, in the, if you were a cool person in New York to see Deep Throat. Anyway, it was an odd moment and she, also became just a, a tragic figure uh, eventually in her life. And anyway, that, that should be enough. I'll explain some more in the reading. The title of the essay is Icon. Icon of freedom and innocent carnality. Icon of brokenness and confusion. Icon of a wound turned into or disguised as a pleasure source. Icon of sexual victimization sexual power, irreconcilable oppositions, icon of 1970s America, icon of every woman, and really just another skinny white girl with average looks and a little flat voice, a type you barely even notice, even if some version of her is everywhere. I saw Linda Lovelace in Deep Throat because my boyfriend was the projectionist at a hippie film co-op. It was 1972 and I was 17. My boyfriend was 25 and neither of us was interested in porn, which we thought of as a corny old person thing. But Deep Throat, an X-rated comedy about a woman whose clitoris is in her throat was supposed to be something different. And we were curious, then won over by the film's dirty goofballery. She just seemed to like it so much, said my boyfriend, and his voice was not salacious as much as tickled. I liked the movie too, because it was funny but liking and arousal are very different. I wasn't excited by Deep Throat, and the only thing I could really remember about it afterwards was Lovelace's sweet smile and the strange expression in her eyes, a look that I could not define and still can't, a look that was not happy, yet which seemed to go with her smile. I was, however, wildly excited by the next movie I saw at the co-op, a film that on the face of it has nothing in common with Deep Throat, but which remains in my imagination weirdly linked 
with the porn comedy. It was Carl Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, an emotionally stunning silent film made in 1928 about the persecution, psychological torture, and death of an inexplicably helplessly powerful 19-year-old girl. I'm sure it sounds ridiculously arty, but trust me, my reaction was not artistic. I was horrified by this film, but also moved and so aroused that I was embarrassed to be in public, even in the dark. I do not like images of persecution or death or psychological torture, but liking was irrelevant. Passion demanded a powerful response and my body could not help but give it. Anyway, in 1980, when Linda Lovelace wrote a book about her experience called Ordeal, then joined Catherine McKinnon's anti-porn movement, I fleetingly remembered her sweet, strange-eyed smile and how different it seemed from the woman claiming that anyone who watched Deep Throat was watching her being raped. I was sad, but not that surprised. It seemed just one more piece of senseless effluvia flying past. Fast forward to 2012, when not one but two mainstream biopics about Linda Lovelace were being made at the same time. I learned of these films because of a brief involvement with a guy who had some vague connection with one of the films as well as very strong opinions on its subject. He felt nothing but contempt for Lovelace, whom he described as a deeply stupid liar, who refused to take responsibility for any of her actions, including her participation in pre-throat porn loops, particularly one in which she enthusiastically received a dog. He told me that in Ordeal, she claimed, among other things, that she was forced by her husband slash pimp Chuck Trainer to, quote, do, close quote, the dog, but that everyone knew it was a lie, that she was, quote, into it, close quote, that is, that she liked it. This was all news to me, but I shrugged and said, I don't blame her. We've all done things that maybe they weren't embarrassing at the time, but we wouldn't want them projected on a public movie screen. Besides, she had kids. If you had kids, would you want to talk about that with them? But, my friend said, then she turned on women against pornography and said they used her too. I said, well, they probably did. Those women are bonkers. He retorted, but then she posed for a magazine called Leg Show, to which I said, ah, so what? That's not really porn, and she probably needed the money. We changed the subject and broke up that night. Thank you. Thanks, Mary. Um, that poor luckless boyfriend who didn't deserve you. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a it's a great it's a great place to start actually because I think that that essay in general, but especially that part that you just read, gives anyone who's not that familiar with your writing a really great example of. The way that you uh, don't ever take something just as read, you know, I find your writing always has this deep inquisitive nature to it. And, you know, that that phrase right in the first paragraph that Linda Lovelace is a, um, an icon of irre irreconcilable oppositions. I think it speaks so well, actually, to a lot of the work in this collection, as well as this one essay. Um, but I wonder if we just start with also welcome to your lovely cat. <laughs> If we just start with what what drew you to write that essay in the first place? Why did you want to 
I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like part of the aim of this was to restore some complexity and humanity to Linda Lovelace, the person, as well as the conversation about sexuality in a more general sense. Yes, she was a, a person who, uh, like, I, I actually hadn't paid that much attention to her. Even, you know, I saw the movie, it was when I was very young, and I kind of forgot about it. Um, I was vaguely aware that she'd um, joined Women Against Pornography, but I wasn't something I paid a whole lot of attention to. But then when I, you know, it came up, I saw these two movies had been made, and this guy that I had gone out with briefly knew somebody involved with one of the movies, and that's how it came up. And I learned more about her. It really did sound like a brutal life. Um, and yet I can see why people had trouble reconciling the image she first presented of herself, which was as if someone was utterly delighted um, to have done this movie. And apparently Deep Throat was far better than what she'd experienced before and that people did treat her well on the set. So like I say later in the piece that, that the director of it was just shocked and heartbroken that she was saying that she had been raped, that he he thought he did agree that her husband had abused her, but that he had totally thought that she was fully on board with everything that was happening. And it was just, it was an odd kind of thing where she, you know, seemed to, she did a lot of interviews on Deep Throat and talked about how much she loved it. And she became a real celebrity in that way. And I think partly she, it's, it's too much for me to try and repeat what I said in the essay, but I think part of it was she really welcomed the um, real love she got from the public um, over that she was such a, you know, both her and her husband were such small, sleazy people um, who did like, the lowest kind of porn available to do in New York City. And yet suddenly they were in this position of being in the most glamorous echelons of society. I mean, really, in a way, how could she not like that, given where she had been before? No, oh, stop it. <laughs> um, she didn't like it. She was speaking up. <laughs> um, but, but then, you know, later, uh, I, I say in the piece that a lot of the worst things in the world feel good at first. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to another porn actress about it who knew her, and she said that she did believe Linda was abused by her husband, but that she also believed she had a ball doing deep throat and was treated like a star. And I, I remember I said shortly after that, and she does look like she's having a ball, a ball in hell, maybe. Well, right. I mean, I think it was both a... It was a terrible experience, but in some bizarre way, did something for her life that she that she didn't know what to do with, and and did seem great to her at first. Seemed a way out of all the sordidness and craziness of the life that had gone before. But then she looked at it through another lens later, and probably felt horrible about it. And but then even then later than that, because she did go against women against porn eventually and said they had misrepresented her and was back at the end of her life at selling both copies of Deep Throat and copies of Ordeal at porn conventions. <laughs> so it, it's a very confusing life story. But I think, you know, I was trying to understand it. And I, I guess I felt ultimately she was just torn by too many opposing forces, not only of her own. She sounds like an extremely sensitive person. And I do compare her with Joan of Arc in the end. I think there's some weird subliminal reason why I connected the two because, I mean, Joan of Arc was also somebody who was just in, had this bizarre power somehow invested in herself by other people and by her own charisma and possibly by her own madness. We don't really know, possibly by, by Archangel Michael. But, and yet she was just destroyed by this. 
um, literally murdered and um, in a terrible way. And it's not exactly, certainly they're very different people, but it's almost like they were, Lovelace was also embodying all these just irreconcilable things, not only of her own, but but because she was projected on so mightily by the world around her, she also, you know, kind of had to try and balance all of that. And who could? Yeah. yeah. No, and I mean, one of the things that you get into in the essay is the, the idea of um the power of understanding your own instincts as an individual. And I think that like what's compelling about the story you're telling and the connection with Joan of Arc is that there's this is like the macro version of what happens to a lot of women just in the world because the woman's body, the woman's identity gets so much conflicting needs and requirements projected onto it. Yeah. Um, and I think that the point that you make through this is that, you know, it's hard to develop a sense of trust in your own instincts. But if you do, then that will protect you as a woman moving through the world and moving through these excessive demands. Um, and I wonder if you would say or would agree that um, writing is something that helps you or a writer um, finesse their relationship with their own instincts, like as a kind of practice of deepening self-knowledge, maybe? Probably to some extent in the mental realm. Um, I think the more important realm is deeper, um, actually being with a person and being able to, I, I do think that women, certainly when I was growing up, and I think it's still true, I, I don't really know if this has something to do with feminine nature or really social, but I do think that women are definitely brought up to want to please others and to take other people's feelings very much into account, which is nice, good thing to be able to do. But I think sometimes it's to the point that women have difficulty under putting their, even telling apart what their own desires are as opposed to another person and feeling like it's all right to say they don't want to do what this other person wants to do, not even, even, even outside of sexuality. Uh, this is a little bit of a long story, but I read an article a few, maybe a year ago, which really struck me as astonishing that a therapist wrote it because she, um, a, a patient of hers had committed suicide and she was shocked. She had not seen it coming. She thought this patient was getting better. Mm -hmm. And she decided to do this experiment in which she had therapists and, and clients working together and the, the therapist would say how they thought the client was doing based on what the client was saying to them. And then in another place, the, the client was able to say what they really felt with, and they were assured no one would see this, the therapist would never see it. And they often were reporting very different things. Wow. Um, but they were saying to the therapist, they wanted to, ref the, the person who wrote the article concluded that a lot of these people, and they were all women, were saying to the therapist what they thought the therapist wanted to hear. They thought the yeah. therapist, they wanted to make the therapist feel good. And sometimes that was not what they were feeling really at all. And that that just kind of was like, wow, that's amazing. Um, they thought they had to take care of their therapist who they were paying to take care of them. Um, and I don't, you know, that's just one thing. I don't know how common that is, but I do feel that's in operation with a lot of women. And I felt it in myself even sometimes. And I think I'm less like that than average. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. It it's a strong instinct I can relate to that instinct um definitely and yeah I see it being replicated I see it in the children of my friends you know who are small and I see I still see that sort of division and wonder whether it's social um 
I kind of think it almost has to be, but I, I, I would like to understand more about it. Um, but with these, I mean, with these essays, so this collection, as we said in the introduction, these are from your writing over 30 years. So some of them are older than others, um, but it spans a long time. And that's a, you know, a career's length um, over that time, a writer changes and, you know, matures or you pick an adjective, I guess. But I wonder how it feels to you to be revisiting this work now and how you relate to these essays from your position now. Well, most of them, I, I, you know, I can, they seem a bit young to me, but um, most of them, I'm, you know, I stand behind, or I wouldn't have put them in the book. The one, though, that the, the one that is the most striking, perhaps, or the most broadly relatable, um, is the one the, on what used to be called date rape, mm. uh, that on not being a victim um, of the trouble with following the rules, and I. I, I like it as a piece of work. I think it's interesting still, so that's why I published it. But I don't know if I fully believe everything I'm saying in it at this time, because at the time, I wrote it in the 90s, and I remember one of the linchpins of my argument was that people need, that, that during the time I was really reacting to, there was this dominant sort of hectoring editorial position that you were reading and hearing constantly that everyone wants to be a victim and no one wants to be responsible. And date rape was kind of folded into that as, you know, these women are irresponsible crybabies and they, they're, they're having just unpleasant sex and calling it rape. And I, I felt like that was sort of off because I felt like, well, there's a reason if so many people are having trouble being responsible in all these different contexts, I think it's not just that people are weak and stupid. I, I think it could be because they don't really know what responsibility is. And to me at the time, what it appeared to be was that there'd been a seismic shift in social standards of behavior, particularly, I mean, just generally, but particularly for women. Um, and that I would, you know, as I said, I, I was brought up to think that, you know, good girls did not have sex before marriage, period. And, you know, there was some, it depended on what kind of family you grew up in and what place and what, where you grew up. But I came up from a quite conventional family in the Midwestern uh, part of the country. And that was pretty much it. You do not do that. And, and if you do do that, you're, you know, there's something very wrong with you. And you cannot, you know, be surprised if what by getting pregnant or being raped or whatever. And that kind of got very radically questioned during the time of, you know, as I grew up. And that rule was kind of, I, I mean, I never believed it anyway, but most girls probably didn't. Um, but but it, it was sort of a very rigid standard of, of right and wrong. And then when that got completely thrown out almost, and it was almost like a new, again, depending on who you ran with and who, what part of the country you were in and what your social milieu was, but it became like, oh yeah, sex is great, free love. Um, everybody, you know, be free to enjoy pleasure and women want to have sex too. And, and so that was not quite the same, but it did have an almost, there was a lot of, not exactly peer pressure, but it, it had its kind of dominance and sway over people's psyche, too, so that you almost felt like there was something wrong with you if you didn't want to have sex with a lot of people. Not that I, I didn't suffer from that. I was very interested in having sex, but, but, it, but it was almost like 
it wasn't a rule exactly, but it was a new ethos. And so I think that between those two, there was never kind of an idea of, well, wait a minute, what do I want? And I'm sure it applied to boys as well as, as girls. Um, but I think for girls, it's it's more intense just because girls are physically more vulnerable to things like rape. So my thought in, when I was writing the essay was, why can't we have a little bit more kind of granular support for people understanding their own needs and own inclinations rather than this or that? And I, I was remember saying that it's hard to teach with words about something as, you know, nonverbal as sexuality, but people, children can be taught by example and, you know, men it's not just like you shouldn't you shouldn't be aggressive but like honoring your I think it put something about honoring your own masculine dignity and that would include honoring the girl as well and that people you know are able to reason think of these things for themselves but I'm no longer sure about is I'm not sure people want to think for themselves mm. well, that's um, a big question isn't it yeah, I, mean, I think I was thinking that then. I, I don't know if I can find exactly where I said that if I look through this, but um, but I, I there was a point in which I you know this requires people to think for themselves rather than to just follow follow along with the dominant ethos. But I'm not sure. I, I certainly think people can think for themselves, but I'm not sure we want to. What do you think is gained from from not thinking for ourselves? Um, well, it's frightening to have to make certain decisions or to go against a, a majority rule or to decide. You don't even, even if it's not verbal. I mean, I think as, as creatures, we're inclined to want to go with the group, it, mm -hmm. most people anyway. And it's simply more comforting that way. It's harder sometimes to go, well, wait a minute. No, I want to go over there. Yeah. Some people are wired more to do that than others, but I think it can be a strain on a person to have to do that all the time I certainly feel that um and so yeah. I think you know it's just easier in general mm. and especially with something like sexual mores because they contain so much kind of judgment and shame so yeah. it's an arena where it's extra hard maybe I mean I think what's really interesting in this essay is that you extend it from its original form in this printing of it um which actually relates a bit back to what you were saying in your linda lovelace essay as well in how an experience can be it can feel one way at the time it's happening and then years later we can feel very differently about it or we have a different relationship to something that we experienced um and in this essay the trouble with following the rules you describe um, several different sexual encounters or would be almost sexual encounters. And one of them, which isn't quite, but looks like it's going that way. Um, in the original printing, in the original version of the essay, you described it one way. And in this version, you let us into that process and you reveal more information about your relationship to the man, which changes or at least adds a different depth to the point you were originally making in the essay's first iteration. Um, and I and I think that's quite unusual. It's not something I've I've come across in 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 another writer's work. And I I think it's um, it was a very interesting choice and one I was glad you made because it really speaks to the complexity of exactly that, like how we process things. But also I think it speaks to the complexity of a writer's decision because obviously writing an essay, you're organising 
a set of thoughts or experiences with maybe a gender is too strong a word, but with a particular kind of logic to it. And in this essay where you add this detail, it shifts the logic of the essay. Um, and I wonder why you wanted to do that here. I think because I considered my original ending a little too neat. Mm. It seemed to be saying that here, you know, I did the right thing and it worked and I took responsibility. And um, yeah, I think I said I went on to say that I considered my decision to have been a responsible one, one be because it was made by taking both my vulnerable feelings and my carnal impulses in account. And I respected my friend as well by addressing both sides of his nature. Um, it's where, where somebody, a, a guy that I knew again back in the 90s was. I knew him as a friend. I didn't know him very well. Um, he happened to be out in California where I was. Um, we had went out and had dinner and he came over to my house. And I, I was not, you know, sure really what I wanted to do. I think that often people, this is what's kind of odd about the consent kind of discussion now is a lot of times people don't really know what they want until the last minute and that can change. Um, yeah. yeah. Or until it's <laughs> happening, you might not know. Yeah. yeah. And he, and of course, that that whole concept of saying obtaining consent verbally ahead of time was not in existence then. But um, we started um, kind of flirting, and then we started making out. And I was, I was interested, but I, I kind of he was much younger, and I kind of didn't didn't quite see getting involved with him because he was like 11 years younger than me at the time, and. But at the same time, I was kind of enjoying it. But then he became physically rough in a way. He was really big. Um, he became physically rough in a way that was kind of scary, frankly. And he said things which I no longer remember, but that also scared me. Um, and I remember saying, sit up, because we were like, he had gotten on top of me. And I was like, sit up. OK, we need to <laughs> we need to sit up. And he said, OK. And he did, and I, I don't remember everything, but I just remember taking one of his hands in mine and saying, um, I don't even remember it, I have to look. If this come, I actually said, if this comes to a fight, you're going to win, but it's going to be really ugly. But is that what you want? I don't think you want that. And he just, just stopped. Just He just was like, uh, no. <laughs> and I said, I, so I, I asked him to leave very politely. I wasn't. I wasn't being angry or frightened at that point. I, I was very much in control. And I, I said, I, I think you should go home. And he did. And so I kind of presented that as a triumph of, you know, being responsible. And I was, it was, it was. But I didn't say that I actually the next day, I, you know, woke up thinking about him and really passionately wanted to see him and was hoping he would call me. And so when he did, I, I invited him over again. And this time it went, very differently. So it was like consent, no consent, really no, and then maybe yes, and then full on yes. And mm -hmm. it, it, it changed um, in a period of moments when he was first at my house, and then overnight it changed again, and then again. So I, I, I thought I made a mistake, kind of was somewhat incomplete leaving out that fluidity, and I became involved with him for two years. It became a real love affair. Do you think that you have to fight that instinct to tie things up neatly or present yourself in the ideal way in your writing? Because I would say as a reader of your work, one of the things I respond to 
very strongly is that you are very bold in the way that you describe your kind of um, contradictions or both sides of your thinking or how you get to a particular place. But of course, every writer has a, an ego or a relationship to a version of themselves or um, and I wonder I wonder how that works for you, if you can articulate it even. How things change when I'm writing them? Yeah, or if you ever have to um, sort of watch yourself from wanting to present a perfect version of yourself or a version of yourself that perfectly aligns with um, the point you're trying to make in the essay. For example, as you say, with that an original version, it was kind of too neat. Um, is that something that comes up often? You know, it probably does, and I'm not conscious of it. Um, I, I, it you're, it's probably true, um, but I don't think I'm as aware of it as I was, as I became when I was reading that. Mm. Because when you're writing, especially essays, I mean, fiction is different, but with an essay, you're usually really interested in conveying an idea or persuading the reader of something. Even if you're jumping around a lot from point of views, which I do, but still you're, you're quite intent on that. So you will kind of kind of funnel everything towards that. Um, that's true. So, yeah, I probably do do that. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about? Um, well, so in this book, that there, there are some essays that are m much more kind of essayistic in style. And as you say, like really go in with an idea. And then there's one piece that really stood out to me that I in particular loved, which was a memoir piece about banging your head on a bridge in St. Petersburg, where the, <laughs> the writing style is much more lyrical and um, it takes quite a different approach. And I wondered if, you know, you are a writer who has like I think all writers actually have various voices that they engage when they're writing in different modes. Um, and I wanted to ask you about truth in those different voices do you find that essay writing and memoir writing have a different way of approaching the truth of what you're trying to say yes because like a memoir is more um it's going to bring in more subjective experience it's going to bring in things that don't have to do it's, it's closer to fiction it's mm. it's still different from fiction but it's it's closer in that like when you're writing an argument piece, like perhaps um, the trouble with following the rules was that you're you're kind of going to stay within the bounds of the topic. Um, whereas with say a mem that memoir, the the story about St. Petersburg, uh, there was no fixed topic. I brought in a lot of different people, which had no who had no practical relevance like everybody I brought up in not the trouble with following the rules has to do with the line of argument or discussion that I'm following um and uh in in the memoir that's completely not not the case yeah you're creating an impression of your experience rather than arguing a point which involves a lot of peripheral vision activity, like people that catch my attention here and there, how when I'm knocked out and, and just coming to consciousness, I notice the personality or the expression on the face of the guy who like rubbed the smelling salts under my nose and his connection with another woman, a beautiful Russian woman that was there. Um, it just, it's stuff that's not rationally important. 
but which that but which is actually the fuller rendering of what's what happened yeah the experience i i noticed in the acknowledgments that you thanked people for asking you to write about things that you wouldn't have thought to write about which really got me thinking about the role of editors in the development of a writer's career because you know when as a reader you receive a book of essays like this it's very easy to think oh it, all the intention is from the author and of course the intention in the work is but perhaps the grain of um sand that kind of starts the granular idea that begins it all isn't actually and I, I wanted to ask you about your relationship with editors in your life and do you feel that your work has been shaped by many editors over the course of your writing life yes and no i haven't experienced the, the only time i really experienced Strong editing, a little too strong for me, in fact, was with bad behavior. Um, and I did need it because it was my first book. There was some sloppiness and just, yeah, sloppiness in it. And the editor was incredibly hands on in a way that most editors are not now. I don't know what it's like in Britain, but most American editors don't actually do much editing. Mm. But this one did. She was old school. And when I first saw it, I was horrified. I actually got on the phone to my agent and said, I don't I, I want to revoke the contract. I don't I can't work with this woman. This is crazy. She's rewriting it completely. I can't I can't do this. And he just said, calm down. You, you're going to talk with her. If you really don't want to do something, make it clear. She's not going to want to make you miserable. And it was true. She didn't. But I mean, we would have arguments for 20 minutes about a single sentence. And they and she had marked up more than half the sentences really heavily. And wow. we would I mean, literally argue. It, it took days to get through it. And it was worth it though. It was actually a really good experience because I had to think about why I'd written something. And even if I didn't like how she'd rewritten it, I could change it. I could come up with something better that she she liked that was better than what I had originally. And I've had that experience with some magazine editors too, that you know, there's a lot of back and forth. Um, no one did that with any of my other books because I guess, as I say, it doesn't seem like editors do that that much anymore. And I haven't frankly missed it. I think I needed it more with the first book than others. But editors have had an effect in, in other ways. And again, suggesting things that I wouldn't have occurred to me, like Grill Marcus suggesting that I write about Norman Mailer. I wouldn't refer to me to write about Norman Mailer. I, I don't know if he made that direct a suggestion, but I think he did. It was like an anthology. He was asking a lot of people to write about seminal, like strange American figures or forces. And I think he did suggest Mailer. Um, and it was great. It really, I had a really good time writing that and, and thought about a lot of things that he represented and how I'd changed my mind about him as time had gone on. Well, yeah, which is an interesting proposition because Mela has a very specific resonance in the in the Anglophone culture, right? Yeah. Um, but I do think that change. Well, changing your mind, perhaps not. But there's a theme that runs through all of these pieces, even though they span, like we've said, a lot a long time, but also quite a lot of different subjects. But you do um, you you deal in complexity. You know, I saw uh, you said in a Guardian interview recently that you have a, a nuanced mind for better or worse. And I think, you know, the word nuance is something that comes up in reviews of your work all the time. Um, and for good reason, because, um, you know, you, you're, to me anyway, a writer who's not content to just land on a simple, a simple discussion or a simple kind of endpoint of something. I feel like you're, you're always arguing for complexity, basically. 
and um, I think that you know a lot of the work in this collection actually the thing I took from it was that it may be challenging it may ask us to consider challenging things like rape and like paedophilia and um, you know take us to areas that people feel very strongly about but actually at the end of the day I feel like you're always arguing for humanity actually and the fact that humanity our humanity that we each possess is really complex it's never sort of simple um, and I and I wanted to draw out in particular there's an essay in here about Gillian Flynn's novel Gone Girl where you single out the reductive tendencies of our cultural moment and you talk about snap judgments and of course, human beings have always made snap judgments. I think it's a very human response to kind of try and organize a complicated world into black and white answers. As we said earlier in the conversation, it, it's less frightening than having to think for ourselves all the time. But I wondered in that essay about Gongal, you talk about the prevalence of digital culture and how there is, this isn't quite your words, but there's a sort of flattening of, um, of ideas that happens in that kind of Twitter world of kind of hot takes and fast reactions. Um, and I wonder, do you, do you think, do you still feel that? Do you still feel that our digital world is having that kind of an effect, that it's kind of stripping us of nuance? I'm afraid so. And uh, I, I did mean what I said in the Guardian interview for better and worse, because I think sometimes it, it's confusing for me. Um, to kind of get a rush of points. It's almost like when I'm asked, and not always, I mean, there are some things I feel fairly black and white about. Um, in terms of criminal, uh, I, I do think, I do have quite strong feelings about pedophilia. I, I do think pedophiles need to be locked up, but um, unless they can control themselves. And I, but I also have a lot of sympathy for them because I cannot imagine what it would be like that's the only thing that you can see. This is where it comes in. I, I tried to just say, here's what I, but, but um, I, I don't know how you cannot have sympathy for somebody like that. What a predicament mm. that that's the only thing you can respond to sexually. You yourself might feel it's wrong. No, it's wrong. But it, how hard that would be to, you know, you can't have the kind of joy and pleasure that other people who are more normal take for granted um terrible so i cannot help but having great sympathy for them but at the same time I, they can't be allowed to do what they desire to do um so anyway i, I guess i was saying I, I don't always find nuance desirable it can be quite confusing um it's a perhaps good quality for a writer particularly a fiction writer to be able to entertain a lot of different points of view and and I really appreciated your saying I seem to be, uh, you think I'm arguing for humanity because I feel that too. I feel like even if somebody is doing, does something, whether it's pedophilia or something else that you consider to be evil, it's extremely important to remember their humanity and that there may be quite deep, complex reasons that for them, this seems the only thing to do um, or even the right thing to do. And I, I, even if you think they ought to go to jail, it's very important to remember that because the way that people are treated in jail in this country particularly is horrific. Mm. Um, and it's partly because people have forgotten that these are people. Right. Like a, 
I heard an interview of one of the prisoners in the Attica uprising. I don't know if you know about this, but there's an Attica, Attica State Prison in Louisiana, one of the most horrible prisons in the country. There was a huge uprising in, I believe it was the 80s, and um, it was violently put down. But that, that I heard an interview with one of the prisoners saying, we just wanted, we weren't, we didn't think we should be let out. We knew we committed crimes, but we wanted to be treated like human beings. And, you know, they weren't. And they, they were, you know, I don't even want to get into what happened to them after the thing was put down. But um, that's what can happen when people forget that, this, that these are people. Mm -hmm. Let alone, it's just somebody on Twitter expressing a different opinion. Yes, well, that, yeah. Do you think way, that, do you think that humility is important? in that context do you think we need to be to have enough humility to see the humanity in people that we even people we may consider to be abhorrent or to have done abhorrent things is it humility yes. as well as empathy or i yeah i wonder um uh, i it may require some level of empathy but even if you can't like there's people i can't empathize with i can't on the face of it empathize with derek chauvin the guy that killed george floyd i i yeah uh, my empathy fails me, but but still, he he is a person. Um, I think he. I'm glad he's going to jail, but um, you know, it, it's just important to remember that. I we don't know where he got to that place in his psyche that he thought that was okay. Um, and perhaps it doesn't matter. But just you know, even if he's in jail and we want him there, um, it, it is important to remember, even if we cannot empathize, which. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, sometimes it's just too much of a stretch. And of course, then we fail. And yeah, I, but I, you, I, I just want to say you don't have to go that far out. I mean, I guess what concerns me is like people are, are so cruel to other people on Twitter and, you know, not only cruel to them, but like do things like take away like there, there was some girl on Twitter. Oh, is this this is too long. We only have 15 minutes, but I, I won't get into it. But I'm sure you know what I mean. I mean. People, people doxed at people um, writing to people's employers and saying, do you really, you shouldn't hire this person. This person said blah, blah on Twitter. And it's just some person. It's just, it's not some powerful political figure. It's not a cop with a weapon. It's just some person who had an opinion that people on Twitter didn't like. Um, that yeah. That's lack of empathy on a crazy scale in my mind. It's, yeah, it's wild. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. I... I mean, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, which I think relates to this, is the idea of victimhood, which comes up in a few of these essays, but particularly in one called Victims and Losers, A Love Story. 
where you have this line that really struck me, I think because of Trump, because you write, to be human is finally to be a loser, for we are all fated to lose our carefully constructed sense of self, our physical strength, our health, our precious dignity, and finally our lives, which is something I am in total agreement with you about. Um, but the reason it made me think about this is I think, you know, loser was a word that Trump used to use as kind of one of the worst insults, right? Because he was so obsessed with winning. And I was thinking about this idea that the idea of being a loser could be such an insulting thing when actually if we reframe it, as you say, life is constant loss. It's something that the Buddhists think about a lot. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be such a terrifying concept. Um, but I, I think that, you know, in kind of a post-Trump discourse in the West, there is this fear of victimhood and this fear of, of being the loser in any dynamic. Um, and I wondered if you think that that fear has become more powerful in recent years, if you think that like the Trump era kind of put oil on the fire or whatever, or, or if it doesn't feel like it's grown. Oh, I do think it has. I th like I remember back in the 90s when that everybody wants to be a victim thing was going on and nobody wants to be responsible. No one wants. I, I remember thinking, no, nobody wants to be a victim. People are <laughs> terrified of it. Um, and that's natural. I mean, who would want that really? But, you know, it's going to happen to most people at some point and that in some way, regardless of who you are, it's probably even happened to Trump. But um somewhere somehow <laughs> but but um yeah i do think people are are really frightened of it and i you know when i wrote those words that you quoted i mean i was in my 40s and i believed them but i've become very very aware of them now because i am starting to lose my strength and vitality and so forth because i'm in my 60s now and it's it, it's it's a hard thing being a human being and i think there's such a drive to be on top of it all the time and happening and have the right answer and look the right way and have the right things that even though people try to push back against that ethos, I think it's hard not to get wound up in it in some way. I mean, I, I have it that my story secretary, which is made into a movie, which is about somebody who has a perverted relationship with her boss for a short time. Um, <laughs> based on spanking and typing mistakes, but um, it's being made into a play now, a Broadway play with music. Oh, wow. it's, it's quite funny, the uncle concept, but, and I love, I really like the director and the writer and the producers. So I have some hope for it. That'll be better than the movie, which I thought was kind of dumb, but um, it's he's trying to get the they're trying to get the complexity the movie made it all into a positive warm experience where they fall in love and they get married and it's all great whereas the play they're trying to capture the ambivalence the fact that she's turned on but she's like it's not okay on the other hand she's both both aroused and horrified and she doesn't really know what she thinks and they're trying to get some of that because that to me is what the story is it's somebody who's on one hand aroused by this but has no idea what to do with it she's in the 80s there's no she can't go online and type in spanking turns me on and get a whole bunch of answers to tell her you know give her any context for this at all she doesn't even have anyone to talk to about it horrible actually really really confusing that, that the boss is in no way friendly and warm yeah um, but in the context of all this they they're and by the way it's a female director and writer and the writer wants to add this sort of 
story at the beginning where she's at a party and she's doing something. I don't want to go into it because we don't have enough time, but to me, it's totally ridiculous to show that she has agency, sex agency. And I'm like, she's not that kind of person. Mm. And, and she, she wrote back and was like, but we don't want to just portray her as a, as a victim. And I'm like, but she, she was, and, and she's the kind of person who can be pushed in that way because she's really young and really inexperienced, not even because she's especially weak. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's, that's the kind of person that doesn't get, is despised in a way. And it like, isn't even considered worth writing anything about it. It's hard to write about because it makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. But and it, these people who are into that story are like, oh, we don't want her to be a victim. That's yeah, so weird. So there's a fear of representing that version of femininity, I think, because there's a fear that in the representation of it, someone might consider that the writer endorses it, perhaps. Um, but I wanted also, I mean, I, I, want, I wanted to ask you about that because in this essay, as you say, you talk about the movie in relation to, this, to the original story and the way that it basically recasts sadomasochism, the movie, as a form of optimization. I mean, it's, it's astonishing that it manages to do that. And I remember watching the movie before I had encountered your writing and enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. It was a nice movie. And, I, you know, um, it's weird when I read the story years later, I remember thinking, it's weird that that was a nice movie. <laughs> and the fact that like it it manages to slot the logic of rom-coms onto your short story, which is really an exploration of nuance and ambivalence. And like, I think problematizes the idea of victimhood in some way as well, because as you say, she's she is she is that kind of person. She is a victim of this circumstance, but she's also not completely um, void of her own agency at all. No, and that's what comes in at the end is that she she does not only walk away from it, but she she does understand the part that she played in it. She doesn't understand it yet. She doesn't know what to make of it. She's quite confused, but she does. She gets called at the end by a reporter who wants her wants you know her to expose this guy, which she doesn't want to do for one thing, because she'd have to expose herself too, but also because she understands that she did play a part in it, that even though it wasn't strictly speaking consensual, there was a way in which she, you know, willingly participated, and that's confusing to her. Yeah. And that's a different situation. I mean, the movie, you sure, I mean, there you can write a rom-com about sadomasochism. I don't have a problem with that, but that's not what the story was about. Well, yeah, exactly. I wonder, do you think that writing, and and I suppose theatre, you know, is an extension of writing, playwriting is writing, and of course films have scripts, but the, the visual language of film is, is so much more primary, I think, and I wonder if you think that writing is a better medium for exploring nuance in stories like that than cinema. Yeah, because it can get inside the head more in a way that you would be hard, not impossible to do in a movie, but hard and even a play, like I understand the trouble that the director and writer are having with it because it's it's just doesn't lend itself to that kind of internal um subtlety. But I, I do think it's part of the problem too, is that people are really profoundly uncomfortable about that kind of person. Yeah. Yeah, and also maybe uncomfortable about the fact that 
we don't always have an understanding of our sexual selves before we start to experience sex with other people and in different forms. And as we were talking about earlier on in this conversation, in some of the other essays in this book, you explore that, the fact that you're kind of, you know, a person's identity gets called into being by the experiences of their lives, whether those are sexual or otherwise, right? And the, the simplification of how we should relate to our experiences doesn't leave much room for that fact, I don't think. Um, I've yeah. got a couple of questions from some audience members that I'm going to just jump into now quickly. So Daniel asks, are there any essayists, past or present, who you admire or who inspired any of the essays in this collection? I don't know if there's anybody who inspired the essays in the collection, but yes, um, two people that I've read recently who I really enjoyed is R. Hilton Alls. Um, uh, read a book called White Girls that I, uh, he's written other things too, but I, I, I read his book White Girls last year. This not only about white girls, although Flannery O'Connor, um, he has a beautiful essay on Flannery O'Connor, also about Malcolm X and um, um, <laughs> great comedian, um, Richard Pryor. Um, and um, also a woman named Joanne Beard, um, really beautiful essayist, um, famous for a book called The Boys of My Youth. And she recently put out another collection called Festival Days. She might not be known in, in England, but she's really she's really good. I don't recognize the name. Festival Days. Yeah. Okay, I'll make a note of that. Um, and then Lisa asks, from your experience in the editing of Bad Behavior, were there any overall lessons that you remember that taught you something really crucial about your craft? Hmm, that's a good question. I'm not sure I can answer it because it was so long ago. Mm. Um, I, I think maybe just to really think about the effect of, I mean, I knew this already, but it's different to learn it, to be reminded of it in the context of working with another person, um, to be very aware of each impact that each word is having um, on a sentence, how it can pull the sentence one way or another. Um, that's probably. And to think about adjectives. Oh, yeah. 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 That's a good one. <laughs> um, and I wanted to ask you if there's anything you've been reading lately that you'd like to recommend. Yes. Um, I'm reading a book that I really am enjoying. Two books, actually. Um, one that's just came out, I think this fall, called Homeland Elegies by... Um, Ayed Akhtar, I believe is how you pronounce his name. It's He's a guy who came to America with his family from Pakistan. He was born here, but his family came from Pakistan. And what it's his experience in, in America during that time in a lot of different ways. He became, I mean, after 9-11, they were living in New York, just the kind of terror he felt in various situations then. But also as it, it opens out his learning his father was a Donald Trump supporter. Wow. Um, and and why and desperately trying to reason with his dad about that and his dad basically because he represented a kind of old school masculinity also his father knew him because his father was a heart surgeon and Trump had some heart problem um, years ago that his father was actually flown in to treat because his father is a specialist and his father was just utterly seduced by him and I had would point out but but he might actually have us on a, on a list on an anti-Muslim list he goes no no not us not us we're not we wouldn't be the kind of people and 
it, it just it was it, but it gets into so many things it's it doesn't just stay with that it's really complex and really personal and he, he talks about greg becoming a playwright and um becoming acquainted with this incredibly crazy wealthy muslim guy who was on a mission to get revenge on these people in Pennsylvania or something who wouldn't let his father, not, not bloody revenge, but financial revenge. It's very complicated on these place that wouldn't, that really persecuted his father and made it impossible to build a mosque. Um, it, it, it's a great, it's, it's great, absolutely great. And then totally different. I just happened to have this by a musician turned writer named Adele Bertai. It's a book called Peter and the Wolves. Also, another kind of memoir about her life as a 15-year-old in the punk scene in Cleveland and about how she befriended um, she's a gay girl who nonetheless befriended a super heterosexual guy named Peter um, Lofner, who did who was one of the members of seminal punk band Perubu, and how she, you know, developed her voice and her, her, her performing persona and came to New York, met Nan Golden became part of this really great band called the Contortions. Um, it, it's it's a really, really enchanting um, book about the time period and, and her trajectory. They're both kind of people they're all, in a different way, both books about strangers in a strange land because she was an orphan. Her mother abandoned her and she grew up in foster homes. So finding this guy and this punk scene, not romantically, but a, a, almost like a sibling relationship was really great. Mm, I love books that explore that, the power of the kind of platonic connection to be something, you know, just as meaningful as romantic love um, and just as meaningful as family love as well. I think it's really yeah. wonderful. Um, I've got another question from the audience, from Susan, who says that she's interested in my use of the term endorse um, earlier when I think I was saying the writers might fear endorsing a victim type female character. Um, and whether your experience, Mary, is that readers or critics have, in recent years, a more difficult time distinguishing between complex, well-developed characters and whether an, an author is endorsing a behaviour. I mean, I think this is quite an interesting one to ask you with relation to your book, This Is Pleasure, which deals with complex things that maybe you don't necessarily endorse, but, you know, you want to represent. I wonder, what do you think? Well, I, how much time do we have? Because we're we're quite close. To we can go five five minutes over if everyone doesn't mind. Well, yeah, I I I had wanted to talk about this because I've gotten I've noticed, but particularly the this is pleasure, but also the oppositions that I've gotten some that the two pieces that I've read that came out in the UK about it were just kind of extraordinary to me because they both really seem to be using the book almost to and not push, but through the lens of a certain agenda that, and kind of to make me endorse things that I didn't, I don't necessarily feel like I do. Like um, the one in the, there's one in the New Statesman, I, I you read that one, I know, because I pointed it I, out. I, she, she makes me sound like some kind of crazy Phyllis Schaffle I throw back. <laughs> um, like, like at one point she's, she's saying that, I, I considered the current feminist mode rigid um, and an inevitable reaction because the moral guideposts are taken away and it's a, it's a crude representation. But she was also like saying that, let's see, I could actually quote it for you probably. Yeah, I do if you have it there. Um, 
she's talking about the thing that happened in Detroit, that the, the, the one of the things that, that happened in uh, the, the um, trouble following the rules where I, I had first described the situation as rape. And even though I didn't really quite know what it was, I did have sex when I didn't want to, but I did not tell the guy. It was a very complicated, more so than I can say here, because um, we were came from really different cultures. I was a white middle-class girl. He was a black man from the underclass, I mean, real underclass in Detroit. We literally were speaking different languages in some ways, and we both knew it. So it made it hard for us, harder to understand each other. Also, I was quite high. And so for a long time, Gates still thought of the event as rape. Since then, she has changed her mind. Quote, finally, at some point, I realized, no, I wasn't raped. I never said no. I do not. I don't want to do this. Close quote. This, again, goes against the dominant strain of contemporary thought that consent is active, not passive. You saying yes is the only invitation to sex. I don't agree with that, Gateskill said, a statement that many contemporary feminists might find not just controversial, but be potentially dangerous. If you don't even try to tell the man no, when he, whether he personally asks or not, I don't know how you can say then I was raped. She defended this view by referencing the context in which she was raised. That, that's not really what I did. Mm. I wasn't defending it by the context in which I was raised. I mean, I honestly don't see why it's even a controversial statement. Um, I, I think, yes, consent can, certainly doesn't have to be passive. I, I don't quarrel with somebody wanting to ask to be sure of what's going on. Um, though I would think that, you know, full kissing and arms around somebody would be a pretty strong signal of consent, but we don't have to go there. But what I do question is the idea that, like, if you don't tell somebody no and you're going along physically with what they're doing and they're not being forceful, they're kissing you, you're responding, their arms are around you, you're responding. How is it rational to expect that they're going to not realize that you don't want to do it unless you tell them? I don't I don't even understand why that's a controversial idea. And it's got nothing to do like with how I was raised. Even like I brought up the my experience in the past because. I was bringing up the fact, again, this sort of binary, it's like people don't want to be binary in terms of gender, but they have no problem being binary in defining what consent is. Mm -hmm. um, I brought up how I was raised because I felt like it was an idea of all the responsibility was on the girl or young woman that men, we were taught that men, you know, they have these uncontrollable urges and you can't expect them. You have to tell them, no, you have to draw the line. You don't want to have sex with somebody. Don't be in a car on a deserted road with them. Don't go to their house. Don't be in a, don't be alone with them because X, Y, and Z is going to happen. I don't think that's right. But I also, I don't think it's right to just go so far in the reverse that it's all on the boy. And he has to ask for consent all the time. And the girl doesn't have to say anything. I mean, and then and the person said, um, if you again, this, she suggested, absolves them of blame, meaning I'm absolving men of blame if I don't say no. Um, let's see. Men would try I'm talking about the past. Men would try to get women to have sex with them. That's what they were expected to do. If you put up no resistance, if you didn't struggle or anything, I don't think you could expect a man in that context in the past to really know. She doesn't want this. This, the reviewer, suggested absolves him of blame. That's not really what I said. But today, any man who has been to college or consent workshops or the norm have been taught to get consent. 
Well, you know what? Not everybody's been to college. Um, what if you're in a different country where nobody's even heard of this idea? It's a very valuable thing to be able to yourself, even for your own well-being, to be able to say, for your own clarity, to be able to say, no, I oh, I don't know if that guy in the past in Detroit would have raped me if I'd said no, because I didn't say it. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's important, even for a woman's own self, to have clarity. Um, and if you really, if the idea is it's all on the guy and he's the only one responsible, that doesn't that doesn't seem right to you, me either. And again, I don't understand why that's an even controversial concept. No, I think that it speaks to the flattening of a discourse, probably from a place of fear. Again, you know, the cultural flattening, as you say, into this very binary thinking. And I think, you know, there are some great writers who are writing back into the space of sexual complexity and complexity of the negotiation of sex. I mean, sex is a collaboration between two people often or more, more than two sometimes. But it is. It's a collaboration, which means that it's also a negotiation. And like any negotiation process, it's not absolute. A negotiation is an ongoing kind of thing. And I think that um, I think that it's easy to read nuanced work about consent through um, a lens of kind of temporary binary thinking or fear that flattens it out. And I think that's what it sounds like happened. Well, when I read that review, I, I I felt similarly to you that it had misrepresented the honestly the depth of what you're doing in the essay, um, and also the fact that I think you know one of the things you do in your writing is you let us into your personal experiences of your life in order to make us reflect on the world that we all share. But you never tell people what to think, and actually a strong strand in your work is in defense of figuring it out for yourself, as you're saying now. Yeah, I don't think I'm qualified to tell anybody what to think. In fact, I was saying to you at the beginning, I'm very honored that people are interested in my opinion. I'm very honored that a book want, people wanted to publish the book about of my essays from a long time ago. But I'm a 67 year old woman who I haven't, you know, I haven't been dating or been faced in these situations for a really long time. Uh, it, it's kind of amazing. I'm, I don't think I'm in a position to tell people what to think or what to do. And I'm really glad that people are interested in what I think. But I, all I want to do is say, you know, there's, there's a lot going on here um, between two people. And just remember, it's not just here's the right way or here's the right way. Nobody works that way. You know, when I was a kid, I mean, again, I get to bring up the new statesman that that I, Gateskill, would never have trusted a man to take this kind of responsibility. I didn't think that way at all. I wasn't, I didn't believe what my parents were saying that, you know, boys are possessed of this uncontrollable lust that they can't. I was looking at them and going, they don't, they don't, have. I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, sometimes they are. It's true. I did some, you know, my first, my first experiences, I did encounter really powerful masculine lust, which was scary. But I also encountered my own lust, you know. It wasn't one thing or the other ever. And that's, I guess I am trying to remind people of that. And if people think it's valuable to hear, that's great. But I'm certainly not about telling anybody what to do. No, and I think the thing that happens with when you're a writer who approaches, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're a writer who approaches complex, really complex subject matter that people feel very strongly about, 
you are going to be open to misinterpretation more than a writer who's writing about things that don't agitate people in that way. Um, and I think that's true of any of the writers. I mean, I was thinking of Catherine Angel. I don't know if you've come across her book, um, Tomorrow's Sex Will Be Good Again. I think if you haven't, you would find a lot of interest in it because she's it's a book that is really about digging into the questions around consent and how a very black and white consent culture doesn't leave room for a woman to really know her own desire and to learn her desire through trying and changing yeah. her mind. And, you know, also, I think like you, Catherine is a writer who makes a lot of space for the fact that human beings sometimes are drawn to really dark things and sometimes we're drawn to danger. And sometimes I think in one of your essays, I can't remember which, but you describe it as the questing part of ourselves, which I love because I feel that strongly too. And I think like most people, you know, I've been drawn to really dark things at times and sometimes have found horrible things there, but sometimes have found really enriching experiences there or experiences that showed me something very important about myself or about the world. And and this very black and white, you know, at, and yet I still feel the need to say this is not a, a rape apologist sentence because I fear the censorious nature of uh, yeah of of being misunderstood. So I I I think it's I think it's par for the course in these kinds of conversations, and that's difficult. Basically, I mean that might sound like a bit of a cop out, but uh, you know I think maybe I, I mean we should probably end in a couple of minutes because we, we're going over. But maybe the last question then is like, how do you how do you navigate feeling misunderstood by reviewers or critics or readers generally? Like, is it something that troubles you? It does. Um, because sometimes I feel like I'm sort of putting myself out there in a way that um, is painful and it's not it's not helping anything that I sort of become fodder for other people's agendas, like with the new statesman person who seemed like a very nice woman. I just I don't think she had any wicked intentions towards me, but it's just sort of she, I sort of became a, a thing for her to or maybe her editor, but and also another one unheard as a piece. It was actually a pretty great piece by Catherine Ann Manoff, but I liked it. But she also kind of torqued my meaning and contextually just left out a lot of context so that I sound like I'm saying things which I'm not saying at all. I do tend to sound like a rape apologist in that. And it just is kind of and again, I don't think she meant to do that. It's just I, I became sort of a uh, fodder in a way, a, a way to kind of put her own feelings out there. Um, and I, I do find that very painful, actually. Um, I mean, it's great to, you know, engage with people, but I feel like I've uh, sometimes have created a situation, I've created a situation where I've kind of made myself into an object sometimes in a way that I don't like. And yeah. I, I worry that, that the communication isn't clear. Um, and I should just maybe not do interviews at all, though I like this one. If you're live, you can't really be misinterpreted. But yeah, um, uh, I feel like I shouldn't do interviews and just let people read the work and have their mm -hmm. own interaction with it. I should do what I'm basically wanting is let other people let people just meet it and have their own response rather than having it filtered through. Um, an explanation, even my explanation, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I think also print journalism has, even when it's online, but it, you know, it has all these other parameters. You have 
word counts and editors who slash whole paragraphs that remove entire bits of nuance and you yeah. know I I write that kind of stuff sometimes and I, it can be incredibly frustrating or they cut from the bottom so you don't know what you're going to lose yeah. and it's yeah, difficult and this is why like the essay is such a kind of sacred form because you you are as a writer given the opportunity to dig into something very complicated in a contained way that means you can essentially you can control you can go into the nuance because you can control what you leave people with um but I guess, you know, let, to just wrap it up, I mean, that's the thing we can all do with bearing in mind that, you know, human beings are human beings, they're complex, they're not ciphers for ideologies, actually. Um, ideologies are separate. They're not separate from human beings, but they're not, human beings don't embody ideologies only, right? They have a, a lot more going on always. Yeah. Um, Oh, Mary, thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to you again. Thank you, too. I really enjoyed it, too. Great. And thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. Um, I just wish I could engage more with them. That would have been that would have been really fun to hear what other people had to say in more detail as well. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird always the online thing where you can't even see your audience. Um, but I asked you all the questions that we got in the chat. So I hope that our audience feel um, included enough. Um, and we'll say goodnight. All right. Bye Thank bye. you. Bye. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.